I'm desperate for you. Great song. Thank you so much, Mark and Julia, for that gift this morning. I want to say a word to you about the pace before we get into the sermon and just say to you that I have been like a needle stuck on a record of late with some reading about the slow, methodical, and long passage reading of Scripture. It dawns on me that in the world that we live in with Uh, the quick sample and quick dip method and just give me a word of encouragement and a verse. And by the way, they literally mean a word. They don't want a paragraph. They want just a couple of words, the shortest sentence possible. Give me the most efficient and effective and convenient thing you can give me. And I'm here to announce to you this morning that we are fighting hard uh, to do all that we can do. We're fighting against the temptations of pragmatism and other things that would creep in to try to govern and say we need to speed things up when we gather together. It dawns on me that that may be the longest passage of Scripture that people look at in an entire week. I hope it's not, Grace Covenant family. I hope it's not. I hope it's one of the shorter ones you read. But I would love to hear stories of us as a church family getting lost in the reading of God's word, just losing track of time, reading extended passages of scripture. The church would gather for that in the early days, and I am reminded of the power of that in these days as we take our time working through God's word. We've been told, and now transition in the sermon, how you like that? We've been told that time heals all wounds, but many of us have come to realize that time is benign and can be and is incredibly neutral in fact proximity may affect our pain but it's the treatment applied to the wounds that determines how quickly we heal and also there may still be scars we've been told that if we get the right people in office that political change will make all the difference that we need but we find out that we image bearers are sinful shocker (laughs) to our core regardless of the office or the title that we carry, and that even if the issues were right at a national political level, it does not change the human heart. We are right to engage as citizens. We are right to show up and be engaged, but we are completely naive to think that any government can fix what ails humanity. We need the great physician We need the King of Kings, and we, as God's people, need to call on the Lord. Last week, we left off this incredible cliffhanger and stark reminder of this simple truth in verses 23 through 25 in our text. The title of the sermon this week, if you want to give a nice title to it, it's, it's His Call. It's His Call. We'll see that play out in just a few moments. That text that Jeremy started us off with, verses 23 through 25. We spent an incredible amount of last week's time. In chapter 2, the, mo- the bulk of chapter 2 talks about tracking with Moses' early life and this unconventional preparation for him to be a leader. But life in Egypt was still moving on. 
Imagine being in Egypt while Moses is getting all this development training in Midian. You have no idea that this is happening. All you know is slavery is still happening. The savagery is still happening. And they're looking to slaughter anybody they can. Not aware that God is at work, but God is at work. Moses had not yet come face to face with this undeclosed providence, but we're going to see that unpack here in just a moment. In the first few verses, if you're making notes this morning, by the way, yes, the notes are online, but this morning I went back old school with us because I like old school, and I've got a printout there that you can write some notes on and tuck into your Bible. You don't have to depend on the app because I know all of you disable all of your notifications when you're looking at your Bible and your devices, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, So... Use pen and paper if you need to. I I want you to notice in the passage, look, time doesn't heal all wounds. Moses had been in Egypt for many years. He'd been in Midian now for nearly 40 years, but the yoke of slavery and bondage is still oppressing the people of God. Notice there's a complete leadership change. Pharaoh has died. A new one has stepped up, but that didn't make anything better. Political change didn't improve the situation, but prayer made a difference. They groaned. Look at the words there. They groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? That God remembers his covenant. I'm 43. I don't know if my wife, she's not here today. She doesn't like for me to announce my age because you'll know we're close to the same age, but I'm 43, and I am finding myself constantly needing to be reminded of things. Yes? No? Just me? Just me. Okay. So I find myself needing to remember things because why? I forget things. But this is not God remembering something because he has forgotten something. This word remember here, the picture is to bring to the front burner and to act on it. In Psalm 105, the Bible tells us he remembered his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Psalm 106, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. You may recall in Genesis 8.1, the Bible says God remembered Noah. In Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham. Genesis 30, he remembers Rachel. Not because he had forgotten them, but because the time was right for him to bring them to the front burner of his plan and act on their behalf, on behalf of this covenant-keeping God. God remembers his covenant. That's your first point. God remembers his covenant. This covenant here, and this covers that last, the tail end of chapter 2, would easily be described by the Jesus Storybook Bible. Christy didn't know I had it in the notes. She mentioned it. I love it. We use it as a resource for kids. But here's the deal. They describe that said love of God this way. They say that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That passage goes on to say God saw them and he knew them. He knew their situation. He knew their enemies, and he knew his plan of rescue. Listen to me, church. Prayer makes the difference that matters. Political change, not so much. Time healing all wounds, eh. I could survey the room, and we'd find that not to be the case all the time. 
But we can make two observations about the kind of prayer that they pray. This is not sermon. This is bonus material, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Two observations that you can make here. If you're taking notes, here's a note I would make on that type of prayer. Number one, it honestly reflected the need. You could put honest need or honestly reflected the need. This prayer was not a generic call for a blessing. It was not a Lord bless us. We'd love it if you'd look our way. It was a cry. It was a depths of the soul crying out to God for deliverance. When's the last time that you got on your face before God and cried out for the deliverance of somebody else? That you groaned and cried and felt the weight and the burden of someone who was enslaved, maybe in addiction, or enslaved by the enemy, blinded, by the things of this world. It honestly reflected the need. Secondly, it rightly promoted the purposes of God. It rightly promoted the purposes of God. Israel's comfort was not the goal here. They weren't just trying to get out. Israel's power play was not the goal here. They weren't simply crying out to change places with the oppressor. They didn't see the solution to them being oppressed as them becoming the oppressor to shift the power from one sinful people to another. There was no critical theory at play here. Your possessions, your pleasure, your power, your position are not the right motives for prayer. Prayer, church, God's glory is. God remembered his covenant. Second point this morning, if you look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, God reveals himself. Wow. Up to this point, Moses has not seen or heard or known about what this providence was in his life, how he wound up happened to wind up in Midian do you remember when you saw when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior and you had some aha moments about how God had spared your life and kept you from stupid can I say that is that okay and I'm talking about you and and me but kept me from making incredibly incredibly dumb stupid mistakes in life his sovereign hand had kept me and preserved me until I could respond to the gospel. What a glorious God. But I didn't know all that. I thought I was lucky. No. No, God had spared me. God had spared you. God spared Moses. Moses was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was being faithful to do the work that God had put in front of him. Let's look at the text together. He was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that if you are faithful, Jesus says, over a little, he would make you over, set you over much. In Luke 16, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So I, I want you to take note there that, that Moses is simply doing what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, men and women and boys and girls, be doing and found doing what you're supposed to be doing. You say, I'm waiting on God to, to show up and to show me something and to reveal his will to me and to call me to do this or that. Great. Don't put life on pause while you're doing that. Keep serving with love. Keep glorifying him. Keep doing the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. Let's take a look here at how God reveals himself. First, we see the mountain of God mentioned. This is Horeb. It's in the town, and Sinai is another mountain name that's given to this place. Perspective is everything, though, because nobody had called this mountain the mountain of God before 
Moses had an encounter with God. Moses didn't call it the mountain of God when he saw it the first time. Oh, look, there's the mountain of God. No, he had an encounter with God and called it that afterwards. Have you had any experiences like that? Maybe in your childhood, you had just driven by that church on the hill or that church across the street. But one day, you met the Lord there. And it became a special place to you. Not because God dwells in buildings made with hands, but because something happened at that location with the gathered, assembled body of Christ. Perspective is everything. We see the mountain of God, and then we come to, of course, the burning bush. Look at it. We see the angel of the Lord in the bush. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is not a fluffy little angel wearing a diaper with wings and a bow and arrow. No. This is an angel, the angel of the Lord. He appears out of the fire. He's also referred to as the Lord in verse 4. The messenger spoke as God, not simply for God. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany, this Old Testament appearance of God. God appearing in a form where he can interact man to man because the scripture says no man can see God and live. Many throughout church history, especially early church fathers, believe this to be an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord, this messenger of Yahweh, appears to Moses, but he appears in a flame in the form of the bush. There's no further description here except that it was ablaze with fire and it caught Moses' attention. Now, I don't want to linger here more than we need to, but there is a miraculous display of God's power here that bears us to just focus for a moment. I, I believe that the bush uh, can cause us to think of several things. This is a spectacular example of the never-ending, inexhaustible power of Almighty God. Our God, the one who upholds the universe, hear me, church, will never run out of fuel. <laughs> he never sleeps nor s slumbers. He is the flame, the all-consuming fire. The bush wasn't burned, ultimately because the Lord was in the midst of the bush. Again, I don't want to spend too much time here and just preach a sermon here. It probably would work at a camp meeting, I don't know that the text supports it's been in too long on it, but here you go. Here's a couple thoughts. I think the bush is symbolic of a couple things. Number one, I think the bush is symbolic of the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, our Bible, this precious book that you and I hold in our hands. The Word of God has stood the test of the ages. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God shall stand forever. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your Word is fixed in the heavens. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God's Word will not fail, church. You can bank on it. It will stand the test of time and the scrutiny of the ages because God is in the midst of His Word. I believe the bush is also symbolic of the church of Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a cultural institution. Church family, you've heard me say this before. I'll say it for those uh, that are our guests this morning and those watching that haven't heard it. It is an organism. It's a family. It's a flock. It's a body. It's the bride of Christ. It's not a club. It's not a volunteer organization. Nor, this one will sting a little in 2020, nor is it a service provider. The church is the spiritual authority of Christ himself. 
on earth ordained by God to officially affirm and give shape to our Christian lives. The church wasn't birthed in culture. She isn't sustained by culture, nor will she be shattered by culture. In fact, she thrives and is lit ablaze when she is counter-cultural when the Lord is in the midst of her. She will burn brightly in spite of the winds of this world. The church will burn brightly in spite of the assaults of postmodernism and pragmatism creeping into every aspect of church thinking. She will burn brightly, not because because of the bright men and women on the pews or men at the behind the sacred desk no she will burn brightly in spite of the flawed people that make her up she will burn because she is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and her lamp is trimmed and burning because Christ is in the midst of his church can the church say amen don't you worry don't you worry about legislation. Don't you worry about this, that, or the other crippling us. You know where the church is thriving around the globe, where it's illegal to assemble as a church? To whom much is given, much is required. We are a part of God's church that will not fade. Let me move on. I said I wouldn't camp out there too long. I preached a little there. Let me get back to teaching. Moses responds to the image. He turns to the side to see it. Wouldn't you? Would you turn to the side and see that? And not just because back in the day, one of those flames, if a bush caught fire by a lightning strike or something, it was likely to set everything else around it ablaze. But here's something he had never seen. It was on fire but not being consumed. He responds to the image. He turns. The Lord takes note of Moses turning to the side. And then they, I love this, exchange names. <laughs> it's the first step in building a relationship. Notice, though, immediately as they exchange names, it becomes clear that they are not equals. This is not a casual encounter with the man upstairs. Look at verses 5 and 6, please. He says, don't come near. Take your sandals off. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. God, as he walks near, says, stop. You are there. I'm here. You're unholy. I'm holy. God speaks with clarity. There's an initial command that demands obedience. Yes, it was an act of respect and reverence, which is still practiced today, to remove your shoes. But this was God speaking up saying, mm -mm, you act differently. You rarely did that in the desert, on the desert ground. Can you hear Mary's voice ringing in your ears from the wedding at Cana? Whatever he says do, do it. God calls each of us to himself. But the only way to approach the God that created the heavens and the earth, the only wise and true one seated on the throne of all glory and power, the only way to approach this God is on his terms. It's his call. He's in charge. And he has commanded that we come to him through the shed blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Chester writes, Today people like to define God for themselves. Think about it. When people say, oh, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. You heard somebody say that? Or, I don't think God is like, da, 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 da. What they're basically saying is, I don't want anyone to tell me what to think about God. I'll decide for myself what God is like. I'll imagine him or her or it in whatever way I choose. 
And we Christians seated on the pews of Grace Covenant Church this morning go, uh-uh, right? We cross our arms go like, that's evil. Chester writes, Christians are not immune to this. Of some of the aspects of God's character or Christian truth that we struggle with, we might say, well, I, I don't really like the way that sounds. I, I just don't think God is like that. It might be his judgment. It might be his sovereignty. It could be the standards that he expects us to abide by as his kids. We make a God in our image and he becomes a fluffy God, a God who suits our desires but cannot help us when we are in need. We think of God in the way we want to think of him, but God is a speaking God and he revealed himself to us in his word and he speaks clearly today through his word. He's still revealing himself through his word to all who will stop and turn aside and see this great light. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I'm not interested in finding out someone's opinion on God. What does the word say? This is the source book. It's the source text for us, church. God reveals himself on his terms. Last point of the sermon this morning. God reveals his plan. God reveals his plan. Now, I'm going to ask you to just follow along in your Bibles in verses 7 through 10. We'll put the verses on the screen. I'm just going to highlight some of the action verbs that struck me. If you were circling and highlighting some words, I would circle some of these. Look at what he says. God says, I have surely seen. God says, I have heard. Then he says, I know. If you skip to verse 9, what we're looking at is God's motive for his plan, by the way. Verse 9, it says, their cry has come to me. I have seen the oppression of the enemy. Hear me, church. He knew what was happening, and he knew who was making it happen. I know there are times we're all tempted to wonder whether or not God is keenly aware of what's going on. Does God really see what's happening in our world? I mean, do you ever find yourself asking, God, are you watching this when you're watching the news? Does God really know? Yes, he knows. He's seen. He's heard. The cries have come to his throne. He is keenly aware of everything. Nothing catches him off guard. But we'll see his plan unfold in just a few moments. God is also responding to Israel's cry for deliverance, and he will respond to yours. God responds to earnest prayers of faith. A prayer that God hears is when a person genuinely cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness and repentance and faith. If you will cry out to him, he will hear you. God will save you. It's not a magical formula. It's not a say this, don't say that. It's a crying out to God over the misery of your sin and begging Jesus Christ for mercy. That's the beginning of a relationship with the Lord. We see God's motive. We see God's purpose in verse 8. God wants to transfer his people. I've come down to deliver them out of the land and to bring them up, do you see it, to a good and broad land. He wants to take them out of Egypt and put them in a place with milk and honey. It's a land occupied by other nations. They're going to have to conquer them. There will be battles. But God is going to save them, watch this church, from something, slavery, for something, worship and witness. And that's what the gospel does for us. It saves us from slavery to the enemy, to our self-destructive ways, 
and to be a witness and to worship the Lord forever. You were not saved to hop on the horse and ride off into the sunset like the Lone Ranger. There is no evidence of that in the New Testament that God has these Lone Ranger Christians that are thriving. No, they're all connected to the local body. God saved you from something into the body of Christ. We see God's plan unfold in verse 10. And I don't know about you, but I'm given pause here. God says in verse 10, come, I will send you. It's God's call. And he chooses to send a man. Israel's crying out. And God looks like he's not to be bothered. Remember, all that turmoil is still happening over here in Egypt Moses' life is developing, but they're not aware. It seems like nothing's happening. Have you ever been in that situation? I mean, you just keep grinding it out. You're wondering, God, are you even interested? I keep crying out to you. Nothing seems to be changing. Listen, brother, sister, God hears. And you may not recognize this, but look, look around in the room. He might be developing the answer in a pew near you to your need. But he's working on them too. God wasn't in our kind of hurry. He wasn't delaying or dithering on his part of the covenant. It was God's perfect will. Watch this. He wanted a shepherd for his people. So his chosen man had to learn how to look after somebody else's sheep. I think I'd say that without crying. I made it through it. While Moses was patiently tending to another man's flock, God met him there. They exchanged names. They began a living relationship with one another. God describes who he is and his connections to the Israelite people. God disclosed his full awareness of everything that was going on. He said, I'm God, I've seen, I've heard, I know, and I've come down to do something about it. What's my solution? You, Moses. You with your fragile childhood. You, Moses. You with your impulsive failure at the first time you were moved to act with compassion on behalf of your people. You, Moses, who fled when you had been found out. You, Moses, the family man, the shepherd. God could have handled all this himself with one thought, one word, and the Egyptians would have ceased to exist and never been. But Joseph Exel writes, it's strange. It's undoubtedly appeared the most remarkable thing that God did not personally execute what God personally conceived. The thinking was his. So was the love. The spiritual side all belonged to God, yet he called a shepherd, a lonely, unfriended man, to work out, hear this, with painful elaboration through a series of bewildering disappointments. But it was still God's purpose to which he himself would accomplish his work. That got me to thinking. It's not the first time that's happened in the Bible. In response to the call of God, Abraham left everything behind and set out for a country he didn't know. In response to the call of God, Isaac faced the impossible odds of death and explained a God, experienced rather a God who did indeed provide and on whose promises he could trust. Jacob discovered the folly of living by his wits when he should have been trusting the promises of God. Joseph was sent to save lives in a famine. Later, Elijah will be sent to influence the course of international politics. Jeremiah was sent to proclaim the word of God. Jesus himself said, I have been sent to proclaim freedom to the captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The disciples 
were sent to preach and demonstrate the power of God. Paul and Barnabas were sent for a famine relief and they were sent for evangelism and church planning. Titus was sent to straighten out a church. God is a sending God. What will we do about all the pain and anguish we see in the world? Well, it's not your call, it's his. What will we do about the people near us who have not yet heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's not your call, it's his. What will we do about the millions of people who are all over the world in areas where Christ has not yet been named? It's not your call, it's his. It's his call and he is calling you. He's calling you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation in Mark. In Luke, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In John, peace be with you. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In Acts, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, we've been told that time heals all wounds, but time is not the great physician. We've been misled for years as we've gullibly believed that political change would get the job done, but politics does not produce righteous judgment. Only the king of kings can. We find ourselves calling on God, crying out for deliverance. Yesterday, a, a national prayer March on D.C. with thousands and thousands of believers crying out, calling on God. And when we do that, I wonder, do we hear God's call back to us? God says, I hear you. I've seen. I'm sending you. This morning, we need to remember God's covenant. Not that we've forgotten it, but to bring it back to the front burner and act on it. We need to remember God's name and publish it to the ends of the earth. And we need to remember God's plan and marvel at the fact that he chose us to be a part of his great salvation. I don't often close with a little illustration, but this one just fits the bill quite well. One preacher colorfully dreamt this up. This obviously isn't, this is definitely extra biblical, so just hang with me for a moment. When Jesus ascended to heaven after his mission on earth, the angels asked him, did you accomplish the task you set out to do? And he said, yes, it is finished. They said, wow. Second question, Lord, said the angels, has the whole world heard the news? He said, no. The angels then say, well, what is your plan? Jesus said, I've left 12 men and some other followers to carry the message to the whole world. The angels looked at each other because they had seen the men that Jesus was entrusting this to. Busted fishermen, tax collectors. They look at Jesus and say, um, do you have a plan B? No. There's no plan B. 
I wonder this morning, to whom is the Lord calling you? Let's stand together. Maybe he's calling you to himself this morning first because you don't know him as Lord and Savior. Maybe he's calling you. I believe, I'm praying that God will call from all generations in this congregation to the mission field, to vocational ministry. But can I say this too? Also to be vocationally, whatever it is that you're gifted in doing and to be a missionary in disguise, if you will serving in whatever capacity the Lord dispatches you to. Let's pray together. Father, I pray even now that the call that you have placed on our lives, the call to faithfulness, the call to serve you, the call to know you and the fullness of all that you are, Lord, it's your call, it's not ours. We say yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. We say yes, Lord, we will trust you and obey you. And Father, this morning, if there's someone you're calling into that living relationship with you, if you this morning introduced yourself by way of the word to say, I am the God of the ages. As a way of introduction, so a living relationship could begin. Father, I pray that today they'd respond to the call. We love you, Lord. Please make our worship acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our strength and our redeemer in these moments. Church, let's sing together and worship the Lord.